Well, I want to welcome you here today. I got back on uh, Friday from two weeks at uh, Southern Seminary in Louisville. Had a great time uh, in a class learning about ministry teams. And then the second week I was down there, did some writing project I'm doing. And our family joined us down there. And so I knew I was going to be gone. And so in my absence, I asked asked Lance Menon to come and uh, preach in my place, which I'm thrilled about. Lance is... uh, a pastor, I don't even know your title, music youth pastor at, music, music youth pastor at um, Mount Morris Evangelical Free Church in um, Mount Morris, and uh, the church there is sort of a church, sister church to us in the sense that we have done some things together, some youth activities together, just teaming up and whatever, making our group, which is small, a little bigger, and making your group, which is small, a little bigger, and kind of combining and We've done some things together, done some events together, and as I, as I count, I think we've done three winter retreats together with Jeremy, that one, and a couple, of, and we've done two summer retreats. We just got back from one a couple of weeks ago uh, in Iowa, got some video out there on the internet. I'm going to send all those uh, to you. You can watch them. It's pretty fun uh, time. One of the things I appreciate about Lance is that he plans much of it, and I just kind of along for the ride, and... Uh, just uh, the, the Menons are a, a close family friends with the Brandons. In fact, uh, I was thinking about it. We met them uh, six years ago in May, May of 2010, um, First Baptist Church in Freeport, another kind of sister church to us a little bit. There's a friend out there, Caleb Colstead. Um, they had a conference out there. Steve Lawson was preaching this Bible conference, and so we went, and Lance, we, we met there, and uh, Gordy Bell had been telling me about this guy named Lance Menon, not Lance Milton, Lance Menon, who said, Steve, you ought to link up with him, and so I'm like, oh, okay, and so we finally did, and that was like on a Sunday night, I think, when Steve Lawson was preaching out there, and then our day off, both pastors, our day off was Monday, and so we got together, I think we, we left your house maybe midnight that night, probably, as I remember, and uh, since then, we've become great family friends. We often take our watch fireworks down in Mount Morris together, and our their kids have become cousins to our kids, essentially. And so we appreciate the the men and family. Um, and Lance, a good preacher. I've always appreciated how he puts his heart into what he does. You just it's evident he's a servant, and he pours out himself to his kids and to his church, and that will be evident, I'm sure. So Lance, come and open the word for us. Well, it's a pleasure to be with you this morning. And uh, all those feelings are mutual. We love the Brandons, we love Steve, and it's always a pleasure to be around like-minded people. And what a great opportunity to worship with you guys this morning. Thank you so much for the music. Just really ministered to my heart. As a music pastor, you don't always get to sit in other people's services. So when you do, it's, it's a, real, a real privilege to do that. If you've got your Bibles, open up to the book of Romans, chapter number 8. In December of 1999, my family, we packed everything up. We moved to Toulouse, France, where we were missionaries for just shy of nine years. And I remember hearing about this movie called Les Miserables. A famous French uh, writer named Victor Hugo wrote the book. And the movie came out, and it wasn't long before we had rented the movie, and we were watching it in Paris, of all places, to be watching Les Miserables. And if you know the story, the story is about a famous convict by the name of Jean Valjean. Jean Valjean is convicted at a young age of stealing something. He was poor and destitute and needed something to eat. And he stole some food and was caught. And he was sentenced to many years of hard penal servitude. He had to serve out his life sentence as a servant in a rock quarry. And there he became very strong in this rock quarry. In fact, he became known for his strength. 
The day finally came when he had served his time and he was released from prison. And ironically, he makes a statement, something like this. It's not word for word, but it's close. He said, now the real punishment begins. And you think, what? You just served out all these years cracking rocks out of a quarry and slave labor, and now you're free! And yet you say, now the punishment really begins? And that's kind of the starting point of where the story takes off, because what he's alluding to is that for the rest of his life, he'll be known as a convict, and he'll have to check in with the police wherever he goes, have to show his paper saying that he is condemned. And he realizes he'll never be able to find a quality job, and the rest of his life will really just be further continuation of the punishment he served. So Jean Valjean decides to take matters into his own hands and he changes his name. He adopts a birth certificate name of somebody who has died in a church fire or something. And he develops this company in this small community and this company becomes a thriving company. And he does these great things with his company and the whole town begins to prosper from it. He rises as a problem with the women working with the men, and so he takes away that temptation. He has a shift for the women and a shift for the men. He becomes a very moral man doing some really, really good things. But his past continues to haunt him. And one day, one of the former prison workers at the penal place where he was cracking rocks out of the quarry shows up, and he says, I know this guy. Somehow I know him. And he puts all the pieces together, and he realizes this man is not who he says he is. This is Jean Valjean. And so the rest of the story goes, there's a cat and mouse pursuing where Jean Valjean is kind of hiding from the inspector. The inspector's trying to figure out, is this really Jean Valjean and what's going on? And it becomes this terrible scenario and eventually Jean Valjean has to leave everything and he flees because he realizes his past is caught up with him again and he's caught again. And he flees to the city of Paris where the French Revolution is taking place and he's helping there and doing good deeds, serving the poor, doing lots of incredibly noble things till one day he's caught by Jean Valjean and they're standing on the edge of the Seine River and Jean Valjean knows he deserves what he's about to get he knows it he knows that the law has finally caught up to him and he can't escape the punishment of the law he knows it but something astounding happens The inspector looks at Jean Valjean and he says, in essence, I have to condemn you because I am the keeper of the law, yet I don't want to. And he handcuffs his own hands, the inspector does, and he stands on the edge of the Seine River and he tips backwards into the water. And the law, represented by the inspector, dies. And Jean Valjean is now free. And I'm sure I'm reading way too much into this because I'm a believer. (laughs) But when I watched the inspector die, I thought, I'm free. The law no longer has condemnation over me. This is a picture of the gospel. And I know Victor Hugo was not a believer. I'm sure he didn't intend to write that in there. But as a believer watching this, I'm thinking, this is me. I'm free. I'm free. Open your Bibles to Romans chapter number 8. We're going to begin at looking verse number 1 of Romans chapter number 8. Romans chapter 8, verse number 1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
If you're in Christ Jesus this morning, if you realize that you're a sinful being and you're in desperate need of a Savior and you have no hope in and of yourself, and you understand that Jesus Christ died for you, suffered the punishment for your sin upon the cross, and three days later rose again, if this is you, if you are in Christ, the Bible says, there's no condemnation. You are free. Free. That's amazing. I'm free. My past sins, the punishment for them has been paid. My present sins, the sins that I did this morning or will do later on this afternoon, they've been paid for. Any sin that I will commit in the future, it's paid. I am free. That's amazing. Free. The other day, Chloe and I were, Chloe's my nine-year-old little girl, we were riding in the car together and I began to quiz her about the gospel, trying to under, get a grasp of what she truly understands about the gospel and trying to understand where her heart is. And I said, Chloe, I said, you know, Jesus died for our sins. I said, what about the sins that you're going to commit this afternoon? She's like, I don't know, Daddy. I said, what about the sins that you're going to commit three or four years from now? She's like, I don't know, Daddy. I said, Chloe, this is the beauty of the gospel. They're all paid for. You're free. And this was her response. I wouldn't do that if I was God. She's right. I wouldn't either. And that's the unbelievable beauty of God's grace. Which started a whole other conversation. What is unmerited favor? Explain that to a nine-year-old. We are free. We are free. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I am free. Look at verse number 2. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. In verse number 2, Paul brings up two different laws here. There's the law of sin and death, and there's the law of the spirit of life. Let's first look at the law of sin and death. The law of sin and death is a law that we are all under. You sin, you die, both physically and spiritually. Eternal torment in a real place called hell. We are all under this law because we have all sinned. Romans 3.23, Romans 6.23, we all have sinned. Worse yet, this law says that we continually have a propensity towards sin. It's in our nature. Every human being that's ever born has a continual propensity towards sin. They're not always as bad as they could be or as bad as, as others around them, but they have a continual propensity towards sin. I like to explain it this way. Take two babies, put them in a crib, and throw in one toy, and what happens? Yeah, you're adults, you know, don't you? Mass chaos, why would you ever do that? Where did they learn that? Nobody taught them. It came from within their very nature. Their propensity is towards sin. That is the law of sin and death. You sin, you die, both physically and eternally. We are all under that. 
and we're enslaved to this fact that we have continual propensity towards sin. That is the law of sin and death. The second law that he mentions is the law of the Spirit of life, which is found in Christ Jesus. This law sets you free from the previous law. We are free. We're no longer shackled to it. God intervenes for us. We're no longer shackled to this law. I no longer will have to suffer eternally, tormented in a little place called hell. I'm freed from that punishment. And in addition, God now gives the ability to exercise control over my flesh. I don't have to. To sin. He's broken completely the law of sin and death. It's been broken. Well, how is this done? How does this take place? Verse number three tells us. Look at verse number three. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. Look at the very first words. For God has done. This is amazing. God intervenes here. God is the one who says, I am going to come to the rescue. But before he explains how he comes to the rescue, he tells us that there's this problem here. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. The problem is that the law cannot make us good. What is the purpose of God's moral law? It's a measuring stick of sorts to show us if we are truly holy or not. Like a goal at work or a goal at school or a goal in life. Those goals, they push us to accomplish whatever we are desiring to obtain. And so should the law of God. When we see the law of God, can I get rid of this and just use this? Can I do that? Darn thing keeps falling off. There we go. Let's just set this down here. This is what the law of God should do. We should look at the Ten Commandments and say, oh, do not covet. Well, that's what I'm going to do. I'm not going to covet. Instead, what we find is, oh, my goodness, we start to covet. We see, oh, do not bear false witness. Don't not, do not lie. Instead, what do we find ourselves? All of a sudden, we find that we're liars. And the law can't accomplish what it should accomplish. And why can't it do that? Because of our flesh. It doesn't work because of our natural flesh. That's the problem. So how does God intervene? Look at the next verse, the next phrase rather. God intervenes by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemns sin in the flesh. God intervenes by sending His Son. And this is textbook John 3.16, is it not? For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Whoever would believe in Him would not perish, but have everlasting life. Think of John chapter 1, verse 29, is the cousin of Jesus, John the Baptist, sees Jesus coming, John is baptizing people, and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is Romans chapter 8, verse 3. God did this by sending His Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, 
He condemned sin in the flesh. It was prophesied hundreds of years ago. In Isaiah 53, verses 5 and 6, it says, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep, we've all gone astray. We've turned, everyone, every one of us, we've turned to our own ways. But the Lord has laid on him, on Jesus Christ, the iniquity of us all. What did God do? How did he intervene? He sent his son for us in the likeness of sinful man. He did this for sin, to condemn it, to condemn its power, condemn its punishment in his own flesh. That's amazing. Christ lived the perfect life He fulfilled the law so that he could offer himself up as a payment for our sins and to break the power of sin in our lives. 1 John 4, in this is love. Not that you have loved God. That's not a big deal for us to love God. But that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. God intervened. Why did he do this? Why did he do this? Verse number four tells us. He did this in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Now, if you understand the depth of your depravity, (laughs) you read this and you go, The righteous requirement of the law is fulfilled in me? Whoa. (laughs) Because I know me. I know that if I don't get enough sleep, I'm going to be on edge. In fact, my kids will probably tell me, Dad, you just haven't had enough sleep. (laughs) They know that. If you know me, you, you would know the struggles that go inside of me. You would know the sins that, man, I'm trying to slay and put to death, but struggle with doing that. And I look at my life and I say, the righteous requirement of the law is fulfilled in me? Oh, it's not by anything I've done. It's all by what Christ has done. We call this an alien righteousness. I'm not righteous in and of myself. And instead, God says, I am going to give you Christ." Perfect righteousness. It's accredited to your account. You get it all. It's amazing. Truly amazing. But it doesn't end there. It doesn't end there. Yes, our past sins, our present sins, our future sins, they've all been paid in full. We've been accredited with Christ's righteousness. But remember, the power of sin has been broken. And now I have the ability to live rightly before God. I have the ability to live rightly before God. How in the world could this be? And this is where our text gets really interesting. Because for the very first time, probably not the first time, but it hasn't been mentioned regularly yet through the book of Romans, the Holy Spirit comes on the scene. So look at verse 4. It says, In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, 
How is this righteous requirement fulfilled in us? Number one, it's done through Christ. But number two, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. How on a day-to-day basis can I be obedient to God? To the glorious aid and helping of the Holy Spirit. Notice, this is not a condition upon salvation. It's an evidence of salvation. If you've been freed from the power of sin in your life, you can now live according to the Spirit of God. This is big. This is really big. But what is the big difference between those who live according to the flesh and those who live according to the Spirit? Look at verse number 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. The mindset of a non-believer has no choice. They're purely fixated on the things of the flesh, the things that are temporal, the things of the world. Not so with the believer. We can and are able to set our minds on the things of the Spirit. And this makes all the difference in the world. The worldly person, his mind is striving to be, I'm sorry, the believer, his mind is striving to be set upon the things of the Spirit of God. The things that the Spirit of God will command. Again, a non-believer though has no choice. His options are only the flesh. Not so with a believer. If we choose to set our minds, or if a a non-believer chooses to set their minds on the things of the flesh, which is what their natural propensity is going to do, look at the consequences. The consequences are found in verses 6 through 8. For to set the mind on the flesh is what? Death. Death. This is the law of sin and death. Set the mind on the flesh, death comes. But to the mind that is set on the spirit is life and peace. Verse 7. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. Look at the consequences. Hostility toward God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. For those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Look at the results of having a mind that is set on the things of the flesh. Death, eternal punishment, eternal separation from God, hostility toward God, an inability to submit to God's law, and you cannot please God. Those are huge. These are the realities of someone who does not know Christ. Like the law shows us that we are not holy, so verses 6 through 8 should force us to ask the question, What do I have my mind set upon the vast majority of the time? Is my mind consistently set upon the things of the flesh? Or on the things of the spirit? The answer is the flesh. And something's wrong. Because God has set you free. You've been set free. You're under no obligation to live according to the flesh. None whatsoever. Commentators all agree that verses 5 through 8 are, for the most part, a description of a non-believer. But they should also be a wake-up call for us to examine our own lives. 
although we've been given the power to live a victorious life because of the Holy Spirit, there's still a struggle there. Go to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16, verse 21. Matthew chapter 16, verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and on the third day, be raised. This is not what the disciples were thinking was going to happen with the Messiah. But now Jesus is revealing it to them. And look how Peter responds. And Peter took him, Jesus aside, and he began to rebuke him. (laughs) Can you imagine rebuking the Son of God? (laughs) Oh, boy. Peter had the gall, didn't he? He began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. You shall never be brought to Jerusalem. You shall never be condemned. You shall never be crucified. This will not happen. Verse 23. But he, Jesus, turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, for you are a hindrance to me. Now look at the next next sentence. For you are not setting your mind on on the things of God, but on the things of man. The individual who doesn't know Christ is enslaved to having to set their mind on the things of the flesh. But not so with a believer. We have a choice. We have a very real choice. I was reminded of this a few weeks ago. We went to a, a Minnesota State University in a Mankato, University, Mankato, Minnesota. We went there for a football camp. Um, being a pastor, I'm like, Caleb, any chances you got for a scholarship, even if it's a quarter percent scholarship, an eighth of a percent, take it. <laughs> and so we went up there, he got invited to go up to this camp and, and do some running around and some drills and to see if he was... A, able to maybe earn a scholarship there in football. So we got up there, and things were going really well. Caleb was with the running backs. He's doing the exercises, coming in first or second, and all the events doing really well. And then they decided to put their pads on, and they organized the group. And for some reason, Caleb decided to go with the defensive backs, which he plays safety. It's a defensive back position, but that's not his primary position. It's running back. In my mind, I'm on the field just kind of watching. They told parents we could, you know, stand on the field, watch, and so I'm on the field watching, and I'm going, what's he doing? Why, why is he with the defensive backs? Because Caleb plays free safety. He just sits in the back, and if somebody gets through, it's his job to go up there and flatten them, right? He doesn't have to do any pass coverage or anything like that. That's for the cornerbacks in our defensive system. But that's not what they were doing there at Minnesota State, Mankato. They were working on pass coverage and all these kinds of things. And Caleb had never done that. Never And he is looking like a fool. And there's guys, they know what they're doing. Their footwork is so good, and they're turning right at the right moment. And coaches are saying, get your hips around. And Caleb's going, get my hips around. What are you talking about, you know? I mean, it's just so obvious. He doesn't know what he's doing. And I'm sitting there going, what are you doing? What are you doing? 
It's a six-hour drive to get here. We paid for this camp. We don't have a lot of extra pocket cash here, you know? What are you, what are you doing? And I'm just going ballistic. In my mind, I'm just, I'm literally beginning to pace. I'm like, what's he doing? What's he doing? There's some other parents there. I'm like, I can't believe my kid just went with a defensive back. What was he thinking? And at lunchtime, we, they broke and they were feeding him lunch. And I stopped with Kayla. I said, Kayla, what are you doing? Why are you with the defensive backs? He said, well, they said that we could choose a different position after lunch. So I thought we'd go with the running backs then. But everybody was choosing their primary position first. And that's where all, you're getting all the looks from all the coaches was then. Ironically, while I'm standing on the sideline, I met another guy who was a believer. Strong believer. Planting a church in Minnesota. Like doctrine. I couldn't believe it. We went out for lunch together while the boys were eating pizza with the, the, the other football players. And I told this guy, I'm struggling with God's sovereignty right now. <laughs> there was so much anxiety in my heart and my mind. So much so. And after lunch, I thought to myself, that God sent that man here. That was a gift to me. That man was a gift to me to remind me to set my mind on the things of the Spirit. And I had to stop and say, Lord, you know, we're trying to do our homework here. You know, we, we've talked to these coaches via email. Um, I've, I've done some research. There's some good campus ministries at Mankato State. There's a good campus crusade group there. There's navigators are there. There's some other groups there, Lord. You know, there's even supposed to be a decent church in town. I've done my research, Lord. This seems like this would be a good fit for Caleb. I don't understand why you allowed Caleb to go this direction. I have no idea, Lord. It makes no sense to me. But I'm not going to fight you. And I'm going to trust you. I'm going to trust the fact that you are sovereignly in control. And you have a plan. And you know what? It may not be Mankato State. And that's okay. And when that happened... I was freed. Anxiety was gone. Able to set my mind on the things of the Spirit and let the Spirit of God transform what was taking place in my heart and my mind. So although verses 5 through 8 really are a description of a non-believer, the reality is God has given us the power to overcome sin in our lives. And we can still have a propensity to set our mind on the things of the flesh. But we shouldn't. We need to set our mind on the things of the Spirit. And this is where he goes with verse number 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact... The Spirit of God dwells in you. This is where it gets so good. The Spirit of God dwells within believers. The distinctive difference between a non-believer and a believer is that the Spirit of God is indwelling the believer and not 
the non-believer. And he makes all of the difference. It's so emphatic that the Spirit of God dwells within us. Look at the very next phrase. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. Spirit of God isn't dwelling within you. Not a believer. Period. That's emphatic. The Spirit of God is indwelling every true believer. And He is what enables you to walk according to His desires. Enables you. As I was reading through commentaries, there there was some debate over this, this word of an enabling. They were saying it's really not a good word choice here. It's more like the Spirit of God propels you. As I'm standing on the football field, I'm going, what is he doing? Something inside of me is going, Lance, do not be anxious for anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. Where is that coming from? Spirit of God dwelling within me. Spirit of God dwelling within you. What an amazing gift. And not only does he dwell within us, but he brings real life. Look at verse number 10. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. The spirit brings true life. I think of John 10 kind of life. I have come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. Abundant life. That's what the Spirit of God brings. I have come that you might have life and have it abundantly. What incredible, great news. The Spirit of God brings life. You think about it. Think about when you have the choice to sin or not sin. And the Spirit of God is working overtime. It's like the radar's gone off in the Spirit, and He's saying, eh, oh, time to wake up Lance here, or time to wake up you, man. I hope He's setting His mind on me because I want Him to make the right choice. I'm, I can enable Him to do that. What's He going to do? You choose the wrong course? Huh. There is figurative death. Is there not? The repercussions of sin in a believer's life are staggering. Breaking our communion with God. Bring about dysfunction amongst relationships within a family. Bringing about repercussions to your reputation at work or school. I mean, it's huge. But when we obey the Spirit of God, oh, there is life. Life. Even non-believers, when they do what's right before God, they experience the benefits of that. Real life. But that's not all. Look what else the Spirit of God will do. He will one day raise our physical bodies from the dead. Look at verse number 11. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Just think about this for a second. 
Verse 11. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. Picture this, okay? You're at the tomb. You're inside the tomb. The stone has been rolled shut. Jesus' dead body is laying flat. The third day is coming. And the Spirit of God is beginning to do a work. It's going to raise Jesus' body from the dead. That's pretty cool, isn't it? Look what he says. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. Oh! The Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead dwells in us as believers. That's unfathomable, is it not? That's crazy. I don't think we understand and live like this. The Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead lives within you if you are a believer. And because of that, we too will be raised. Look at the last part of verse 11. He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. What a glorious hope of the resurrection we have because the Spirit of God indwells us. I mean, how many times have you not gone to a funeral and thought, man, I wish they were still around, you know? It's kind of morbid. My dad's 72, and you'd never think he's 72. I mean, he poured his own concrete porch at 70 and decided he's probably getting too old for that. <laughs> like, dad, probably, probably dad, you know? At the same point, he's like, hey, should we paint your house? You know, we can get some scaffolding. It's a two-story. It's pretty high, but we could probably do it. He's 72, you know? And I love him to death. He's just this godly man, a joy to be around. And he keeps telling me, Lance, one day I'm going to die, and you've got to preach my funeral, and you've got to sing Beulah Land. I'm like, you're crazy, Dad. I won't be able to preach your funeral. It would be too hard. Sing? No way. But because he says those things, sometimes I think about what it will be like when he's gone. And if I let myself go too far, I begin to get choked up. But we have an incredible hope. That's not it. There is a resurrection from the dead. Because the Spirit of God that raised Jesus from the dead, He also dwells in you. And this is 1 Thessalonians 4. We, don't want you, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. Do not grieve as others who do not have hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Why will they rise? Because the Spirit of God indwells them. Verse 18 of 1 Thessalonians 4, Therefore encourage one another with these words. We have incredible, incredible hope. Although we look at the law and we say, oh my goodness, I am so condemned. 
There's no way I can fulfill that. That is exactly where God wanted us to be. He wanted us to see our need for a Savior and repent and turn to Him. And when we turn to Him, God slams down His gavel and He says, no condemnation. Past, present, future, sins, gone. You will no longer have to give an account for these sins as you would before a judge. It is gone. No more punishment. And not only that, I will give you my Spirit who will enable you to live righteously. What an incredible gift. So because of these things, set your mind on the things of the Spirit. You've been given a great gift. The Spirit of God lives within you. He brings real life. Real life. And He will raise your body one day. He will raise it. What an incredible gift we have. What an incredible gift you have. And so he continues in verse 12. So then, brothers, we are debtors. We're debtors. You know, when I first read this, you are debtors. Debtors is generally a very negative thing, you know? Don't be in credit card debt. It's a negative thing. Get your house mortgage paid off as quick as you can, you know? Dave Ramsey runs through your mind, you know? Uh, the debtor is slave to the uh, loaner or something like that. I don't know, whatever it is. It runs to your mind. Negative thing, right? He's not presenting it in a negative way here. Think about it. If I was a multimillionaire and I came up to you and I said, you know what? I love you. Here's $2 million. Enjoy the rest of your life. And I walked away. In one sense you'd be a debtor to me, wouldn't you? Although you have no obligation to pay it back, the rest of your life you'd live and go, I've been able to live the rest of my life the way I'm living it because somebody gave me two million bucks. I am forever indebted to them. And that's how we should live our lives. We are debtors. Not to the flesh, he continues, to live according to the flesh. You have no obligation to live according to your flesh. Rather, you're a grateful, joyous, incredibly thankful debtor to God Almighty. Because He has redeemed you and given you the incredible gift of His Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Lord, I've done my best this morning to try to explain somewhat difficult passage 
and yet a glorious passage. Thank you for the free gift that you've given to us. Thank you that the law of sin and death has died and we can know real life. And we can have power over the sin that has enslaved us. All because of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. God, we are grateful debtors. We are indebted to you and we thank you for the incredible gift of salvation. Lord, help us to live in light of these truths. Help us, Father. Help us to set our minds on the things of the Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.